Hi, I'm John Macy. And I'm Georgia Macy. We're a couple of married exennials who like to sit in our bedroom closet and talk about the movies that we love. We went to the movies twice on our first date. It's kind of our thing. It's Comfort Films Podcast Season 3. Hello everyone and welcome to Comfort Films Podcast Episode 107. Today we're going to be talking about the 2020 version of Emma, a Jane Austen adaptation which I have to specify the year of because there are so many adaptations of Emma. That's because they're a really good story. <laughs> it's a great story. Really good story, yeah. Uh, this one was directed by Autumn DeWilde and stars Anya Taylor-Joy, Johnny Flynn, Mia Goth, and Bill Nighy. This came out on March 6th of 2020, and it actually has the distinction of being the last movie that John and I watched in a theater before the COVID shutdown happened and we couldn't go back to the movies for like 18 months yeah i mean that was an interesting send-off from the movies because it's such a colorful and beautiful film it's a happy film you feel great coming out of it yeah so it was a nice diversion at the time it was a great journey to somewhere else and then you had the reality of like this heaviness of covid and being able to come back now and look at it without you know covid on our heels and just being able to enjoy the pure beauty and splendor of this film Boy, this is such an experience. It is a lot of fun. I mean, this is one where we watched it at the theater and we came out of the building knowing that this was going to be a rewatchable film for us. Oh, yeah. This was an instant buy as soon as we could. And we also recommended this to other people. We're like, you know, if you're looking for something to watch and you can't go out to the movies anymore, get this on demand because we just loved it. We really did. Um and as you guys probably know, if you've looked in our back catalog, um, we have discussed another Jane Austen adaptation before, Pride and Prejudice, which was episode 65. Um, and we were joined on that by our friends Kate and Danny, and they're some of the people that we told to go get this Emma <laughs> ASAP, <laughs> and they also loved it. Um, we've also done another version of the Emma story um, in episode 38 when we did Clueless, which as we discussed on that episode, as a modern adaptation of the Emma story. So this isn't our first visit to the Jane Austen well. It probably won't be our last. <laughs> um, but this month, uh, as a celebration of, you know, the month of love, February, uh, we decided to look at Jane Austen adaptations, and we were really excited to pick the Autumn to Wild Emma for our first film. Yeah. I mean, typically, I don't like these movies at all. I really, <laughs> I don't like watching them. I know they're excellent, so it's kind of foolish. It's like, yeah, you know, walk into a restaurant, what's the best thing you have? I have this. No, I don't want it. I'll it, take the chicken nuggets. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's me. <laughs> like, I don't understand it. But Well, you just don't like period movies so much. No, I can't I stand them. I really, really hate them. And I think it's because you were, you know, assaulted by period films as a child. Your yeah. dad really loved the Masterpiece Theater. And everybody wanted me to be classy growing up. What's all <laughs> that? You know, what's all that? <laughs> so, I mean, what I would say is it's an unbelievable film for me because I do enjoy, you know, these films now that I'm older. I really see how this is the root of everything. And I feel that this Emma is a revelation to me because head and shoulders above all of the other Jane Austen adaptations, this is my complete and absolute favorite. And there are so many reasons for that that we'll get into as we discuss. But that is interesting because John, of all, between us, is the one that will say, hey, I, I like that Emma. We should watch that again. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is usually me, you know, begging and pleading. <laughs> 
It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a real change for us because, yeah, I, I'm the one that wants to watch Roadhouse again. You know, it's like I want to find meaning no, in Roadhouse. we're both wanting to watch Roadhouse well, again. That's a classic. Ben Gazzara. Jane I Austen mean, would love Roadhouse. What if Jane Austen, like, did an adaptation of Roadhouse? She would love it. She would totally do that. She would have gotten Ben Gazzara, too. She would. She's yeah. a cool girl. And Swayze. And definitely, definitely Sam Elliott. Like, she would have gotten the same cast. She would have. She would have been like, this is a no-brainer. Yeah, Pride and Prejudice and Roadhouse. Yeah. Yeah. Throat ripping, <laughs> you know, and Regency England. Sure, those two things go together. Go for the turkey with the throat rip. <laughs> Little MacGruber there, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, Jane Austen is definitely my thing always um, because I was super English major and I love, you know, Jane Austen may be second only to Shakespeare for me as far as classic literature that I love to read and can read over and over. And Emma, um, I first read in a Jane Austen survey class uh, my last semester at undergrad, and I was familiar with Clueless at the time, Um, but, you know, I'd never really seen an Emma at that time when I read it. And it's a really interesting book for Jane Austen because, and she said this, um, she was writing a heroine that she didn't think anybody would really like very much uh, (laughs) except for her. Um, so, uh, it's something that's interesting to watch in comparison to her other films because Emma is different. Like, the character of Emma is different. When you look at the other discussions that we've had, uh, with Jane Austen, with Pride and Prejudice, or our upcoming discussion next week, um, which will be about Sense and Sensibility. Another beautiful film. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Um, we have lead female heroines who are not well off, um, who are struggling, who are, you know, in a, a position of, you know, you feeling a little bit sorry for them because they have a difficult time. Emma is not like that. Emma has plenty of money. She doesn't need to get married if she doesn't want to. Um, she lives very comfortably, um, you know, and also she's in a small town that we never really leave um, for the entirety of the story um, and other Jane Austen books. We have girls who are looking for, you know, marriageable partners and they're having to go out of town to go to parties elsewhere. They're having to go to London. They're having to go to Bath. In this, we never leave Highbury, which is a very small town. And Emma is kind of like the queen of that small town. Um, And she can kind of do whatever she wants. And she sort of knows that. So she's a bit bratty. Um, And I think that they really leaned into that in this adaptation and also at the same time anya taylor joy is super likable fantastic fantastic performer she's always good in literally everything we've seen her in. we we adore her um we talked about uh last night in soho that she Mm. was in um, when we did a guest spot with claire over on why the flick last year um because we just we love anya taylor joy and she's a great choice to lead this film she really leans into you know this kind of emma as a little bit of a spoiled brat um who also you know tries to do things well she's trying to be proper um but she isn't always the best person in the room what I think is interesting is how many times we actually see Emma get shown up in the film. And that's something that I really appreciate because it, it lets you know that even though she is the queen and we see that from the beginning of the film, that the queen can be dethroned. 
Yeah. Well, and she always has, you know, Mr. Knightley at her elbow mm-hmm. telling her how wrong she is all the time. So, <laughs> you know, he kind of uh, keeps her in check in some ways. Um, and, you know, I would also point out that this is maybe the first time I've ever really liked Mr. Knightley in an Emma adaptation. I'm always just kind of like, meh. Um, but Johnny Flynn uh, is a really excellent choice because I feel that he and Emma seem evenly matched more than usual. Um, because I will also point out there's a big age difference between Mr. Knightley and Emma. He is supposed to be 37 in the book and Emma is supposed to be around 21. Um, so it's easy to see this as some kind of, you know, older guy who's like tra- telling this girl how to act. Um, but for whatever reason, with Johnny Flynn and Anya Taylor-Joy, I don't feel that it's like that. Um, I just feel like he acknowledges her power. Um, and as we go on in this discussion, we can talk about the other things about Mr. Knightley that kind of, you know, soften the blow of his <laughs> uh, definite criticism uh, of her. So, again, we've talked about, like, the fact that there's a lot of Emmas out there. So what is it about this Emma that really makes us uh, put it at the top of the heap? Um, Not everybody does, by the way. A lot of people think it's just style over substance. But I couldn't really disagree more. I think that the style of this film is what does put it at the top of the heap for me. Um, It's just beautifully done in every single way. Every frame of this film is a work of art. Um, and I think that Autumn DeWild, who had never directed a film prior to this, which is insane to me, is bringing all of her background in visual arts and photography and working in short forms like music video to make this like the best possible version of Emma for me. Yeah, I mean, you can really see how she had a team and that team worked together. And when you can really harness the power of your entire creative team, you can see what, what the benefits are. We've seen this in films in the past. In this film, Autumn DeWild actually had meetings with her entire crew so that they could agree upon the color palette for each character. And this was across all departments. So, I mean, if you're working on the set, you were working on the costumes, you know, everyone was there, the hair, the makeup, everyone was unified in the vision so that they knew when they came across, you know, a certain scene, everything would work together to give the achieved effect. And we do go through four seasons in this film as well. And you want to make sure that you just have the right colors. I mean, some of these things you can notice very easily. Sometimes it's actually very quite easy to miss. You know, there's the yellow that we see in Emma's clothing, which is, you know, something, it's like a slip that she wears under her dress. And, you know, of course, she ends up with Mr. Knightley, and so there is a connection there. Mr. Knightley very prominently wears, you know, a yellow tailcoat. So it lets you know that the two of them are connected. It's just like a little symbol that you have. And I love that. I love how they give us these nods to the connection of characters, not only through the acting, but also through color as well, also through the locations as well. You know, you'll be in a room and you'll see the color and you'll know that's signifying one of the other actors, one of the other characters in the film. In a way, it makes me think of Clue. 
Yeah, yeah, because each of those characters is associated with a certain color. I fully agree. And yes, they are making parallels with the colors for the people, um, with the yellow. I am getting a tad bit ahead of myself here. But I wanted to point out that having that yellow and black clothing on both Emma and Mr. Knightley um, is kind of awesome as well. Because the final song over the credits is an original composition by Johnny Flynn. Um, written and performed called My Queen Bee. And, you know, she's got bee colors on and he actually wears them as well. So not only is she kind of the queen, she's like the queen bee and she has these bee colors on. That's incredible. I, I never <laughs> thought about that. I mean, what, what struck me about that song is it's amazing. I really like that song. It's a song I would listen to, you know, outside of just watching the film. It's a wonderful closing song for the film. And also they go through the seasons yes. in that song as well, which is just like this film. So this is how just everything in this fits together just so perfectly. And um, I feel like they went very period in the look of the film, um, but they also feel very modern in a lot of ways, too. Um, you know... <laughs> One of the things that Autumn DeWild pointed out in the uh, uh, commentary is that one of the first scenes with Emma and Mr. Woodhouse is them arriving at the church for Miss Taylor's wedding um, to Mr. Weston and her walking through the church and, you know, everybody kind of looking at her and wanting to talk to her and get her attention. It's kind of like a popular girl walking through the hall of high school. <laughs> and for me, that makes it like a very post clueless type of adaptation because they're telling the same story and they're nodding at the fact that there are very modern things about this story. And they're playing those up even at the same time, keeping this very, a period-appropriate Regency look to everything. Well, and I also have something where I keep thinking about the music from Clueless. I occasionally think about Paul Rudd, you know. <laughs> I think about the different characters in Clueless, and I'm like, oh, yeah, when's Jeremy Sisto going to show up? <laughs> well, yeah. and Mr. Elton and this kind of looks a little bit like Jeremy Sisto. Like, they both have dark, curly hair. So it's like Elton and Mr. Elton are similar. <laughs> It, look, I really just have to say that this is just so well done that it does feel modern, just like you said. It does. I mean, everything that they have, you know, and when you think about Clueless for a moment, just to think back on that, the colors were very bright. And she had yellow on, too. She had that plaid yellow little suit um, that that she wore, Alicia Silverstone, and I always think of that. So I think yellow and Emma somehow go together for people. Yeah, well, and also in Clueless, they had this very tailored clothes for the women. Yes. You know, they looked amazing with yeah. everything that they had. It was impeccable clothing, and that carries over as well. So it's it does make you think about it. Yeah. It does make you oh, think yeah, about it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, another thing that I felt was very modern in this, in this film is that the first time we meet Mr. Knightley, he's, like, taking his clothes off and getting naked. Yeah. <laughs> which I don't think we see very frequently in a Jane Austen movie. Um, he's just changing clothes. Um, but um, I think that the purpose of that was to kind of show him as being more vulnerable to us um, because he's about to spend the next two hours kind of talking down to Emma. So, you know, we're like, yeah, but I saw your butt. So, <laughs> <laughs> But also Autumn DeWild mentioned, you know, that it was just interesting to see a man having to get dressed uh, in this type of uh, period film 
because we're always seeing women getting dressed and having their hair done and they're putting on all these layers of clothing. But the men have that too. And I think that she was very conscious of uh, making us aware of the men's uncomfortable clothing in this. They always have these collars that are up on their neck, yeah. you know, and tied tight. So they're always like very constricted at all times. And, you know, there's even that scene later where um, Mr. Knightley is kind of super emotional because he's discovered that he's in love with Emma and she is still trying to work on putting Harriet with somebody, now Frank Churchill, but he doesn't realize that, so she sends him away, and he thinks it's because she's still preferring Frank Churchill over him, and he goes home and just has to rip off the top layer of clothes and lie on the ground so he can actually breathe, because he can't usually when he's constricted in these clothes. Well, and he actually needs someone to get him dressed. We see that with Mr. Knightley. You know, he has this helper yeah. helping him with the boots and the clothes and the scarf and the whole nine yards. And it's, yeah, it is like you, you'd mentioned earlier when we watched it, it's like Mr. Knightley's putting on his armor. You know, he's going out to do business and he is going out, you know, to be a jerk somewhat. <laughs> I, and we also have, you know, the flip side of that with Emma later on, where we're seeing, we see Emma actually undress. And so it's like, you know, she is a person that we see as a very powerful character from the beginning. And when we see her take off her attire, it's just like, oh, wow, we know things have really gone low. Well, because she's very armored also. Yes, and she always has an impeccable image. Every single frame of this film highlights how Emma always looks fantastic head to toe. Everything, not a hair is out of place. And when we actually have that moment, where we see her, you know, coming around and, you know, being undressed and just being totally deflated. I mean, you really feel the the weight of that. You feel how significant this moment is in the film because of the way they've done it. And Autumn DeWilde talked about how much she was interested in the costumes, the clothing, and she wanted that to be authentic. Yeah. And I feel that those authentic touches with the clothing really did bring the actors to an interesting place because they they gave them etiquette lessons. You know, they had two weeks of rehearsals and there were there was a person Bill Nye he talked about on set that was like, okay, you know, you wouldn't have done this back then or you would have done this back then. So you knew if you were doing something that was out of line. And the freedom that Autumn DeWilde gave the actors was to say, here are the rules of the time, and I want you to fully understand them. And you can break them, but when you do break them, I want you to fully understand that you are breaking these rules of etiquette for this time period. And, and that, I mean, it really really reinforces the reality of this because the colors which were a very big deal in the time period they actually said that you know when you take a look at clothing now you'll see things that are yellowed and they look old so you don't think it has this this splendor that it actually does and if you look beneath the fibers you can see how bright and vibrant the clothing was yeah because it's been tacked together if you can look at a place where it hasn't been exposed to the sunlight you can see how vibrant the colors actually were yeah and color was an expression of wealth mm. Um, at the time, because the the only people who could wear like these super bright colors are rich people. Um, and what I really loved, and I think you kind of alluded to it before, is that 
because this movie goes through the seasons and because we're revisiting the same rooms over multiple time periods, the uh, production design and costume people and hair and makeup people worked literally as a team yeah. to choose colors that worked within the room with the season and complemented the clothing of the people in the scene. And the relationships. Exactly. Yeah. So every color that you see, you can very much assume that it's intentional and meaningful and that it was chosen basically by committee um, and worked out to look exactly the way it looks because Autumn to Wild is so visual and so uh, just amazing with the way that she works with color and visuals that, you know, it's all under her control. It was her vision, and she guided the team to that vision. Well, the haberdashery was something that was just quickly mentioned in the book, and they thought there would just be a very brief scene in the film of this haberdashery. But they loved the location so much that they actually moved many of the scenes to the haberdashery, so you can really get the full effect of this Willy Wonka dreamlike wonderful place that i kind of want to live in <laughs> totally because yeah. the colors are so great and the patterns and it's just it, it does it does kind of feel like the chocolate factory when you have miss bates in there you know miranda hart is just absolutely hilarious in that you have this technicolor dream room you know and then you have this very funny funny actor just floating around and flittering <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it's perfect and it really does put you in mind of Willy Wonka. I don't know. That's all I could think of. That's all I could think of in the best possible way. Yeah, I think that there's there's there is like this pastel kind of um I don't know, it's like you're inside a cake. So <laughs> I think that's awesome and and I love that. What I find really interesting about Mr. Knightley's first outfit is he has on like these khaki pants. You know, and he's got his white shirt and then he's got like a, it looks like a blue blazer underneath his yellow overcoat. And, you know, if you take a look at him, it's kind of like modern man, right? This is like the beginning of business casual because you have the khaki pants, right? Everyone has their trusty blue blazer. He's got <laughs> his white button up, you know, and it's just like, and sometimes if it's cold, you can have an overcoat. And so it, it's just like, wow. I mean, the hat is something that we've kind of lost over time. We don't really see that. Um, you know, we see baseball hats. That's very casual. That's not where we're headed. And the only people that wear top hats are Slash and uh, Circus ringleaders. So, Slash. Yeah. Slash should have been an extra. <laughs> Slash in the film. <laughs> yeah, he, he's looking for his piano forte. Yeah, yeah, that <laughs> would have been quite good. But it, it's just, I find it very interesting. I'm not a person that really follows fashion per se. I'm just seeing something and going, oh, wow, I can see the seeds of what we have today. Well, it's interesting to compare men's clothes and women's clothes. And I think that I really like that they brought that out when they were talking about the, this in the commentary. Because, again, we always think about the women as wearing like these corsets and being like all tied up and everything. And also we think about the women being um, very elaborate with all of these different trimmings and things like that on their dresses. And there is a, a definite distinction between something that you know, Emma wears versus something that Harriet wears, or even Jane Fairfax, who is a poor relation, um, although she does have a little bit more going for her um, as far as what she's able to wear versus Harriet, because she still does have 
some relations, uh, although Harriet is an orphan. But if you look at them contrasted with what Emma wears, which is kind of always this very elegant, you know, expensive look. And then you also have Mrs. Elton, who is another version here, who is kind of a new money person. And she always has kind of gone over the top. So you, you can tell something about all these people by the way that they look. With men, it's different because they kind of always have the same shape on. You know, each type of man has kind of the same shape of clothes. So Frank Churchill and Mr. Knightley and even Mr. Woodhouse, which is the Bill Nike character, they generally wear pretty similar things. They have a coat and a shirt and pants and boots. But the the way that they're expressing, you know, their individuality could be through the choice of a fabric or through like the high collar and the tight collar and things like that. So, you know, I think that we see Mr. Knightley again as kind of being elegant and, you know, using good fabrics and rich colors, but it's not overly elaborate. Mr. Woodhouse, on the other hand, has got like these crazy pattern clothes and things like that. Bill Nye is just so brilliant in this part. He just looks, he looks like a praying mantis with his skinny little arms and legs, you know, um, and he, his character is so funny, uh, just being always stressed out and worried about everybody's health and stuff. And I think he did a wonderful job. I, I think that when I first saw this, the choice of having him play Mr. Woodhouse was maybe my favorite thing about the movie. Oh, yeah. Um, it's just because Mr. Woodhouse is a wild and crazy character. And Bill Nighy is always that kind of actor. Um, and he really brought something special um, to this part. I mean, his first entrance, as John pointed out when we were watching it, is that he kind of walks down the stairs and kind of jumps off the last stair so even though he's this older man who's always worried about, like, you know, everybody getting a draft and catching cold and getting sick, he has a lot of energy to him. And, and, and that scene goes on to be kind of very perfectly choreographed to show that Emma is very used to this type of life. You know, she and Mr. Woodhouse have a routine. Um, she and her father have a very strict routine, and that's part of their relationship. Um, and it's also something that would be greatly disturbing to him if it changed. So in that very first scene with him, he's lamenting, poor Miss Taylor, poor Miss Taylor. Even though Miss Taylor actually has a great thing happening to her. She, Absolutely, yeah. You know, she's been a governess, which was not a very nice position for a woman to be in. Um, however, she did have a great family that she worked with who really valued her and loved her. So as far as governesses go, she's been very fortunate. But in this time period, being a governess wasn't really that great of a thing. It meant you're pretty, pretty much going to be a spinster and not really have much going for you. Um, you're kind of just a servant, a uh, glorified servant in the house. Um, and she's been able to marry this relatively well-off guy, Mr. Weston, um, and go have her own home and start a family. Um, so it's been a very good thing for her from our perspective. But all Mr. Woodhouse can say throughout the entire movie is, poor Miss Taylor, poor Miss Taylor. You know, why would she want to leave us? Why would she go? You know, he can't stand change. Like, it, it just bothers him so much. And that tells us something about, 
this society. These people all know each other. It's a small town. Everybody's used to doing the same things. Everybody has their routine. And that first scene with Emma and Mr. Woodhouse getting ready for the wedding of Miss Taylor and Mr. Weston is like almost like their clockwork. You know, everything that they do is prescribed. They walk in the same places. They wear the same things. Like everything for them is very regular. Yeah, and that, that's something that's a theme that's carried through until the very end. Because the very end of the film, you know, if you sit through the credits, which are gorgeous, just like everything else, and Autumn DeWild said, well, you know, it's a, it's a piece of art. You want to have something from start to finish. And so as the film ends, the credit ends, you actually hear a clock chime, I believe, six times. <laughs> and it almost sounds like a cuckoo clock or something, like something coming, you know, in and out of a door. And it, it really lends itself to your idea of clockwork. And, you know, Mr. Woodhouse, Bill Nye, he, wonderful, wonderful actor. Yes, he does his million-dollar jump off the stairs. <laughs> and it's almost like in defiance of this clockwork because he knows everything is going to go according to plan anyways because they've done this so many times. And it also brings a certain irreverence to the performance, which is very exciting for the audience who may feel that we may be buried in tradition and are unable to find someone that we can connect to. By finding these bridges between, you know, what was acceptable at the time and what a modern audience is looking for now, I feel that's how you're really able to connect the material. And when he makes that jump off of the stairs, you almost feel like we're going to go into like a 60s beach movie or something, you know, <laughs> like somebody's going to throw him a surfboard or a beach ball, you know, and he'll be right there. But yeah, they have this perfectly choreographed scene, and all of this is not included in the book. This was added specifically for the film, and it gives us so much information that we need to move forward. And I, I love that they have these, in my opinion, economical scenes that give us so much. Because, yeah. again, I think to Clueless, and I think about all the scenes that Alicia Silverstone had with Dan Hedaya. Oh, yeah. And and so it's like, you know, I think about that as a parallel in my head. I'm like, okay, you know, he was doing, you know, his lawyer business. And then Paul Rudd was there and they were working. And, you know, he didn't eat because he was so focused on work. And, again, it's like, okay, I can really see, you know, in this time period, you know, this character, why they're doing what they're doing in the same way that I could clearly understand and a classic film from the 90s, why that character was doing what they were doing. And, and that, to me, is what makes me really embrace this film, is I do feel that sometimes we can see behind the curtain. I feel like they're not, you know, afraid to say, hey, you know, we're doing a really good show. I hope you guys are enjoying it. And I appreciate <laughs> to wink that. wink at us yeah. a it gives us, it gives us those moments. And, I mean, you have so many fantastic performers adding their own personal touches, Miranda Hart, which I found to be one of the most interesting moments, actually went to the scriptwriter and said, hey, I want to add back in some more of Jane Austen's dialogue. Yes. You know, she wanted to go in reverse. And if you take a look, you know, at her scenes and the precision in which she performs them, you can see how she takes this older language and she makes it crystal clear in today's language. She does, and she she brings like a modern sensibility to it because she she talks very quickly, you know, and it's very conversational. And I mean, I just think she captures Miss Bates so well. And Miss Bates is such a great character. 
and I've very rarely, if ever, seen her played this well, um, because Miranda Hart brings all of the ridiculousness, but also all of the heartache oh, of when, this character. When she gets her heart broken yes, from I mean, Emma. But oh, it's, that kills me. That kills me. I mean, me. because the whole thing is this, this is a sad person anyway. Yeah. You know, she's always trying to be positive and trying to look at the good things in her life. But this is a disappointed character. Um, this is somebody who, you know, started life very well off um, and pretty much like Emma. But over the course of her life, they've lost their fortune she never married, and now she's taking care of an elderly relative, her mother. And this is easily something that could have happened to Emma. So I think it's ironic that Emma looks down so badly in so many ways on Miss Bates, because Emma could be Miss Bates if their lives turned out differently. You know, if somehow they fell from grace and they didn't have money anymore, you know, that's what could have happened. And Miss Bates is in, you know, these rooms. They just live in these rooms. She grew up in a nice house, you know, and that was lost to them. So now, you know, they're in a very fixed income. They're, you know, they can't take in visitors and guests. And it's just, you know, they live in this dark little apartment, basically. Um, it's her and her mother. And I think that it's done so well when we see their place as contrasted to a place like Hartfield, um, where every room has these pastel colors and it's bright and there's so much light coming in. When we go to Miss Bates and Mrs. Bates's home, it's dark. You know, they have a small window and Miss Bates always seems to be next to one of those windows, like she's seeking that light. Mm. Um, and, and I think that she is because she's a character who tries to be positive, even though life has handed her a pretty dirty hand. And Miranda Hart just captures it perfectly because even before she gets her heart broken, there's an undercurrent of that through her performance. And when she's insulted at the picnic by Emma, it just, it really, her heart breaks and then she breaks yours too. Yeah, I mean, they, they really set that up. Um, Miranda Hart did such a wonderful job because you're playing the reality of taking care of an elderly parent. And the first thing that I want to point out um, in terms of contrast with Emma is Emma is very close with her father and there is no mother present. Correct. Yeah. Miss Bates is very close with her mother and there's no father present. So it's like they are the two sides, if you will. And I think that's part of the reason why Emma is so vicious with Miss Bates. Um, I also think that Emma doesn't like the fact that there's someone out there that's trying to make her have real feelings. She wants to pick flowers and move on, and she wants to control things. Emma wants to be the person that makes everything tick. Ha <laughs> ha, just like a <laughs> clock in Highbury. That, that's what she wants. And when you have a situation like Miss Bates, that is a very sad situation, and you can't do anything there. You can't change time. You can't make her mother younger. You can't bring back her wealth instantly. Nope. So it's, I think it's because it's something that she can't control. She doesn't want to deal with it. And, and just seeing her is a reminder of something that she can't do. And yep. Emma doesn't want to know anything about what she can't do. 
No, I mean, she only wants good things around her. Yeah. And positive it... vibes only. Positive <laughs> vibes only for Emma. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's a real live, laugh, love kind of gal. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, and, and even with somebody like Harriet, you know, who doesn't have money and is an orphan and doesn't have a lot of prospects. Emma is trying to convince her that she's the daughter of a gentleman and, you know, I'm sure this is going to come out and you deserve great things. And Harriet is a really wonderful, sweet girl. But Emma does puff her up in a way that could be damaging um, because she's setting her up with these expectations that can only cause pain. Um, and that does happen. You know, the funny thing with Emma is that she's always so convinced that she's right and she knows everything. Oh, yeah, yeah. And when she finds out that she's not right and that she's kind of blown it, she doesn't even know how to deal with that. She, she doesn't know how to apologize. She doesn't know how to say I was wrong. She only knows how to say, oh, look how good I did. You know, and the, the fact is everybody else props her up. Well, and her father is not able to, at least in the scenes that I saw, he doesn't in any way ever say, hey, you shouldn't do this. He only sees that she's doing good. He yeah. doesn't He doesn't see that she does anything bad. And this spoils her. Because and that's, he's yeah. like, oh, Emma's always the best. Oh, she's the greatest. And Harriet does the same thing. Oh, no one plays like you. Right, right. Um, on the piano forte scene. And then, of course, Jane Fairfax just burns up the the pianoforte um <laughs> and is funny a much better musician much more accomplished um but emma's always got people propping her up the minute that she's so horrible to miss bates mr weston tells his joke about human perfection ma um so she's just done something horrible and then has somebody like talking about how wonderful she is so you know mr knightley is kind of the only person who's willing to say that he sees her for who she really is instead of just buttering her up. Well, and it's I think it's interesting because Mr. Knightley spends so much time at Hartfield. And so he knows Mr. Woodhouse very well. And so he does see the qualities of Mr. Woodhouse that are good for Emma. And he understands what makes Emma work better than anyone else because... This is her dad, and he idolizes her. And Mr. Knightley also, of course, idolizes Emma. But he is able to be enough of his own person to say, hey, you know, I don't think that this is okay. Yeah. And it's something where, you know, I can really see how it would it would seem like a bully. You know, if you're, you're reading it or you're looking at it, you're like, why is this guy you know, have the power to just say this is right and this is wrong. Like, what is this taming of the shrew? What <laughs> What is this? But it, it's like I feel that the film does a very good job of letting you know why he's saying these things to Emma. And it's because she is interfering with the lives of other people and harming other people. He's That's trying exactly to protect it. people. So it isn't yeah. it isn't vanity. It no. isn't. You know, some like sadist garbage. I mean, you know? occasionally it feels like that. Like a good example for me would be um, when he kind of <laughs> the the pianoforte scene yeah. where she plays the song and everybody's like, "Oh, Emma's so great," you know. And then Miss Fairfax goes and plays a song and just busts down the house with this amazing like classical piano, and you know blows Emma out of the water. 
And he comes over to her, you know, and kind of is just like, oh, yeah, she's pretty good, huh? And, like, he kind of is, is ribbing her a little bit, but he's also saying to her that, you know, she's been uncharitable to Miss Fairfax. And he's saying, well, it's nice that you're giving her the opportunity to play piano here because she doesn't have an instrument at home. This is a real treat for her. And again, he is talking about other people. When he's upset about her leading Harriet to decline Mr. Martin's proposal, mm, yeah. it's not, it's, yes, partly it's because he has encouraged Mr. Martin to be, you know, to ask Harriet to marry him. He's he's told him to do it. He's trying to help Mr. Martin become more successful so that Mr. Martin can marry Harriet. He actually is doing that for their own good, though. And he's saying that what Emma has done to get Harriet not to go with Mr. Martin is going to hurt her in the long run. And it's bad for her and it's bad for Mr. Martin. So he meddles somewhat in the same way that Emma does. That's interesting. I've never thought of that. But I he, never thought of that. Yeah, but he meddles because he truly wants people to have what's best for them. Not because he wants to be able to say, look what I did. Yeah. And that's where Emma is different. because She's a puppet master. She wants yeah. to, yeah, she wants to be able to say, oh, I'm such a great matchmaker. I put Miss Taylor and Mr. Weston together and now they have this great marriage. It's because I'm so good. You know, that wouldn't be why Mr. Knightley would do that. Like he is looking for people to be happy. Sure. Um, and he's encouraging Emma to do that as well. And he does get really upset with her when she does something um, that is not cool. And the Miss Bates scene is a great example of that. I mean, that's when he kind of just loses it on her. And that's also Emma's lowest moment um, because she really understands what she's done and that her carelessness and uh, her just poor behavior, especially around Frank Churchill is you know detrimental to to people in a way that she doesn't understand oh yeah i mean there's a real like disconnect for her i mean for me there's a couple things that i, I want to say about that picnic scene you know what she says to miss bates it, it's like this is something stupid that i would do i you know like everybody would be kidding around oh, i would do it too and, and like yeah. i would be like oh yeah you talk a lot and, and like everybody be laughing. But when I said that, then everyone would stop. And then like the person would start crying. I would hate myself. You know, that's that's where I would be. So it's like I can understand that. But it, it's like there's something there, there's something a lot more charged about it. And I think it's because Emma is always looking down on Miss Bates. It isn't just like, hey, we're friends and we're playing around. It's like, hey, I'm always thinking you're less than. And now in front of all these people, I'm going to take this opportunity to put you down on a nice sunny day at a picnic. And I, I also feel that costume, once again, really plays a wonderful part in this. Because when Emma is in the carriage and Mr. Knightley, you know, is saying, you know, why did you do that? That was absolutely horrible. We actually, you know, don't see this until she really, really, really is losing it. We, we see, like, in the middle of Emma's dress what almost looks like a bullet hole. You know, it's this red hole. Mm -hmm. It's like someone had stabbed her through as she has been physically wounded. And she goes down in the, in the carriage. And it's just like, I think it's a fantastic visual because 
we understand the emotional impact of it, and they wanted to give a visual component as well. And I thought about Bon Jovi, shot through the heart, and you're to blame. You give love a bad name. <laughs> so that I was there. But then I was like, okay, well, maybe it was like a rapier that got her through. I don't know. But it, you get it. It looks like she was literally mortally wounded. And this is where she has her change, right? Mm. Because, you know, she falls then down all the way. This is her rock bottom, right? And, and she literally falls yes, down into the seat. Yes. You know, and this, it's the one time where the cinematographer used a different kind of camera technique as well. You know, the whole movie, he's showing like these smooth kind of camera movements. And in this part, it's like the shaky kind of camera, like the camera sitting in the carriage with her going over like this gravel and that shakiness kind of shows her emotional turmoil uh, really well in a visual way. Yeah, it's I, I mean, it's the work of, of Christopher Blavelt is like something. I, I don't know. This is what fairy tales are made of. <laughs> the lighting. Yeah, I it's mean. perfect. I mean, the lighting that we see through the bonnets. You know, we have so many times where we have faces half in shadow, half in light. And it's perfect. They really are artists in every sense. And, you know, each person on this team is incredible. It, it could do the whole thing by themselves. <laughs> but then you put all of these people together. It really is a super group. And they're going back to this fantastic, fantastic, deeply rich material where you can find so much. And what you talked about, Georgia, it, it, you know, we went back to was that Autumn to Wild would actually, you know, go into a shot and just like move an orange just to get the light she just, just right. She would just twist it to a different angle because the <laughs> the angle of the orange wasn't just right. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Callum Turner, who plays Frank Churchill, said that, you know, she would do that when they were holding something. Like if he's holding a peach, you know, she's turning the peach, you know, a quarter turn so that it's in a quite slightly different shade is showing in his hand, you know, because it's so important that she make this uh, like a painting. Um, yeah. And of course, with painting, light is eminently important. And Christopher Blauvel does such an amazing job with the lighting, um, which takes into account if we're inside or outside. It takes into account the season that we're in. Um, it takes into account what time of day it is and how much light we'd be getting externally versus candles. It's it's so smart and so brilliantly done and so period appropriate that, you know, you're not thinking about it when you're watching it, unless you're me. But <laughs> I'm always thinking about lighting. But <laughs> you you're not supposed to be thinking about it. It's just supposed to be there. And it's suggesting exactly what they want it to suggest um just simply by being done in the way that it's done and i just think it's fantastic it's well, crazy when, good it's yeah when you get lighting just right you know particularly outdoor lighting it is otherworldly it doesn't seem like you were actually on this plane of existence and this is the type of lighting that we have consistently outdoors and the smooth camera movements are are 
just so perfect for Emma. You know, it's very graceful. They have everything sweeping. It's like a dance. Yes. The whole thing is a dance. And actually, you know, that brings up the scene where it's when she's with Frank Churchill. Emma's with Frank Churchill in the street. And all those chairs are in the street. That was actually supposed to be a different location, but they couldn't get it. And so they were like, what if we just have some old chairs out in the street? And that scene, the inventiveness of that I thought was incredible. And I never thought, oh, this was supposed to be in another location. I thought, oh, wow, this is so immediate and interesting. I've never really seen a film where there's just a bunch of chairs in the street. No, but they, it, and again, it feels like really weirdly modern, too, mm-hmm. because I think that it doesn't seem like, um, honestly, particularly appropriate that these two people who really just met... Um, already have like this level of intimacy of talking to each other and pretending to dance in the street. Um, but, you know, that's Frank Churchill's charm is that he has like the easy familiarity with Emma from the minute that they meet because he's trying to manipulate her. And he's always been very easily able to manipulate people. And Emma is kind of the one person that he isn't able to manipulate, even though she you know, seems so open to him um, at the beginning, she pretty quickly kind of pushes past an interest in him. He's he's more interesting for the connection that she could have had then with Mrs. Weston than for himself. You know, the reason that she's always been interested in Frank Churchill, first of all, is the novelty, because he isn't from around there, so he's a new guy. Right. But also, he's Mr. Weston's son, and if she were to connect with him, maybe marry him, then Mrs. Weston slash Miss Taylor would not just be her former governess, but would actually be then her mother-in-law. Yeah. Um. So I think that, you know, there's that family connection, and the Westons have been pushing for that, too. Well, I mean, it's interesting when you find out that Frank has actually promised himself to Jane. And then this was this big secret. So you feel that there is this manipulation pulled on Emma by her rival. Because Jane and Emma always have this rivalry. And one of the things I want to point out with the pianoforte scene with the performance, I believe both of them are actually playing Mozart. But they're just playing. playing. I didn't actually know that, but that's great. (laughs) Yeah, they're playing, you know, different pieces. So it's like, it's really great because it's like a chess game between the two of them. And, you know, when you have that with them and you have this reveal when Emma's at her lowest and she realizes, well, she's, I don't recall how she discovers that, you know, the two were were promised to each other. You know, it's just supposed to be an extra kind of, hey, take that. Well, they, it's uh, Mr. and Mrs. Weston tell her um, about it, but and she's very upset. Yeah. And they think she's upset because she wanted to be with him. And she's like, no, that's not <laughs> it. You know? It doesn't have anything to do with that. I don't think she cares one way or the other that he's with Jane. But it's because she, at that point, thinks that Harriet loves Frank Churchill that she feels bad about it. Well, think about this too. Because she's just like, said, oh, I try to get her with Mr. Elton. He's a jerk. Oh, we need to talk about her. Him. Frank Churchill, same thing. She's like, oh my God, I've screwed up again. But in reality, she doesn't realize that Harriet is actually all over, you know, Mr. Knightley rather mm. than Frank. Okay, you talked about the mother in law angle and how that would have been important to Emma. 
you know, she could have had that. Now her rival has yes. her as her mother-in-law. Well, although, That's pretty awful. I don't think Frank's, like... I don't think Frank's relationship with the Westons is going to stand up, you know, very well after his behavior. Um, yeah. But, you know, he got what he wanted. He got Enscombe. He's inheriting. You know, he's got the girl he wanted to be with. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that we're kind of supposed to feel sorry for Jane in this case, because Jane actually is a really nice person um, who has had a lot of difficulties in life. You know, she lost her parents early. She's had to, you know, live with her other, uh, with, live with other people kind of who are a patron to her. Sure. Um, and her only real relatives are the Bates grandmother and her aunt, Ms. Bates. Uh-huh. And so she's, she doesn't have a lot of prospects. Yeah. Um, but Frank Churchill and she kind of made a connection and, 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 you know, they, they cut a scene um, of Emma meeting up with Jane and Frank uh, later. Oh, yeah. And Jane kind of says, like, she's really sorry to Emma. Like, we didn't, we I wasn't trying to fool you. I wasn't trying to do anything like that. Really? And Emma says, you know, no, I don't think anything bad about you whatsoever. To wow. Jane only, not to Frank. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. But it's kind of like Emma and Jane, by the end, you know, after all this has happened, she gets it. Because the things that Emma hated about Jane, which was her reserve and how she was always quiet and things like that, she understands why now. And I think that Emma has kind of reconciled to her own behavior by that point um, and feels like she was... Uh, uh, uncharitable with Jane um, so she doesn't want Jane to feel bad toward her so that's okay so that situation works out positively in I'm the not end. sure if that was in the book I mean we started listening to the book again and just didn't make it through the whole thing because life happened but <laughs> um, yeah that I, it was something that was in uh, the movie and they cut that it was one of the deleted scenes that we were able to see on the disc um and it wasn't necessary, so I understand why they cut it, but it was kind of interesting to actually see Emma and Jane talking to each other um, and being honest, because so many other times when they're talking to each other in the movie, uh, Jane is trying to hide something, obviously, mm-hmm. and Emma just doesn't get it, because Emma thinks she knows everything, but in a lot of ways, she doesn't know anything <laughs> at all. Yeah. I but mean... I mean, I'd be interested to know if that was something that they added or if that was in the book, because there's other scenes that they added, you know, that weren't in the book that were really great. Like uh, you talked about one already, but another one is uh, the the hot house flowers mm, scene. Yeah, yeah. Um, at the very beginning of the movie, we have Emma going out to the hot house to pick flowers um, for Miss Taylor's wedding bouquet, and uh, you know. <laughs> She's walking out there in like this white gown and this servant is like holding a lantern in front of her. You know, she's just like, it's very funny to me because it's so stylized. Um, But it's drawing a parallel between Emma and these flowers. You know, they're beautiful and exotic, but they're also very sheltered. And Emma, for all that she thinks of herself, is also very sheltered and not very, you know, understanding in the ways of the world. Her sister, who is a bit ridiculous, you know, sometimes and, and is always, you know, worried about whether the baby's getting sick and all this. Her sister lives in London. Her sister has traveled, you know, and she's done a lot of things that Emma hasn't done, um, but she still looks down on people in a certain way. So it's kind of funny, you know. Yes, she's super special, but she's like 
a big fish in a little pond um, where there's other people who are, you know, big fish in a, in a big pond or little fish in a little pond. And, yeah. you know, if you think about people in those terms in this, um, it's really interesting. And I think that was a brilliant choice um, by Autumn DeWilde and her team to kind of have this hothouse flowers thing that actually comes up multiple times. She officially meets Frank Churchill in that hothouse as well. So we've talked a little bit about character and things like that, but we haven't really talked about acting so much yet. And I do want to talk about that because I do think that's, again, um, what makes this movie great. Yeah. And a lot of times what makes movie great is when you get the perfect cast together. And I have to say, I think they did that here. Um, I think Autumn DeWilde had people in mind specifically for who she wanted to play different parts. And Anya Taylor-Joy, obviously, fantastic choice for Emma. But another person who I think is 100% perfect is Mia Goth, who plays Harriet. Mm. Um, and she had her in mind, Autumn DeWilde had her in mind, and was showing Anya Taylor-Joy different people that she had thought about for different roles. And she showed her Mia Goth for Harriet. And was just like, I think this this was the right person for Harriet. And Anya Taylor-Joy had like a total freak out. <laughs> because she and Mia Goth were friends already. Um, so they already were like very, very close. Because they were in Marrowbone together in 2017. And became great friends through that film. Um, and so going into Emma and playing kind of basically these girls who become best friends was just a perfect thing for them. And it comes across so well in the movie that they really, truly do love each other so much. Um, and generally, we just love Mia Goth anyway. Oh, I mean, she's fantastic and everything. Pearl. Pearl. I mean, uh, she's so good. Axe. I mean, Pearl yeah, Axe. very, 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 very strong. I mean, she was yeah. great in Axe, but then Pearl came out. I'm just Pearl. like, oh my God, are you serious? Um, yeah. She's just a really good um, actor. And... I think that Harriet is a person that can go wrong um, because she's got to have like this kind of innocence and sweetness, um, but also kind of have like a little bit of a hardness to her by the end where she has been disappointed so many times, you know, but she also has to be believably able to just fall, you know, head over heels in love with people. Um, and I just think Mia Goth does such a great job capturing that. And her, you know, even though she's like has all these crushes on people, um, her relationship with Emma is kind of the closest relationship um, in the movie. And I think that they go from being in a really different kind of a power dynamic where Emma is kind of leading Harriet around and telling her how to behave to by the end, Emma really... Um, appreciates Harriet for who she actually is and they do such a beautiful job in this the last scene that they have together which I think was the last scene that the two of them shot together yes it was um, where Harriet comes in and says you know basically I'm getting married to Robert Martin he proposed again and I said yes you know and she's already told her in the book Emma has actually said I can never be friends with you again if you marry Robert Martin because that's just not the kind of person I associate with. In the in the film, you know, when Harriet tells her, you know, I'm going to, you know, marry him, she's basically saying, like, I've made this choice and, you know, you can either take it or leave it um, because this is what's happening. And at the same time, she's also telling her, 
my father, you know, has has made himself known to me. And he's a he's not a, a gentleman. He's a merchant. He sells galoshes, you know. And she's also saying to her at that point, you know, you've always said my father is a gentleman and that that's the reason that you had an interest in me. And that's not true. So what are you going to do about it? You know, and <laughs> Emma is in a position where she has been brought so far down over the course of the film with the kind of bad things that she has done. She's just so happy to have an opportunity to have her friend, you know, that she says she's thrilled for her, you know, that she found her father and she's thrilled for her that she's getting married. And they, you know, it's, it was so hard for Harriet to come in here and say this to this person. And, you know, she, she's kept it together. And then when Emma is okay with it, she just is crying and Emma's crying and they just hug. And it's such a great scene. I just love it. What I think is interesting. I mean, I'm actually jumping back on topics here, but when it is revealed that Mr. Knightley is not going to go for Harriet, this actually happens in a yellow room <laughs> and Harriet is wearing yellow. So this just brings us back again to an earlier discussion about color, character, relationships. But that was also a very, very strong scene between the two of them again. The scenes between Emma and Harriet are really wonderful because they start very light and very funny. You know, I, I really like seeing Harriet, you know, eating the macaroon. Yes, that's hilarious. You know, like when she has that like cookie and the way she crunches and the way they just have everything so perfectly and quietly choreographed the way that they look at the painting i mean let's talk about the painting oh, the drawing. yeah i mean that is absolutely incredible you know one of the things that's very funny is on the blu-ray one of the special features is that bill nye he actually picks up the feather and poses yes you know as if you know he's going to get painted like one of those french girls <laughs> yeah he's a riot <laughs> Uh, yeah, but uh, that's a great scene, yes, because, you know, Emma's sitting here trying to make Harriet look, you know, like to her best advantage to appeal to Mr. Elton. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a little bit ridiculous. And we see that. Sure. But Mr. Elton just seems to be eating it up. So Emma just thinks she's doing a great job. And then Mr. Woodhouse and Mr. Knightley come in and, you know, Mr. Elton is just like, oh, isn't this the most amazing thing you've ever seen? And they're like, mm, no, um, because it isn't. It's kind of, you know, it's fine, but it's not like some amazing thing. I mean, that's one of the great things with Mr. Elton, too. I mean, we haven't given the fair due to Mr. Elton yet, who's one of the most ridiculous characters in any Jane Austen film ever. Well, I think what would be the best thing, I wish that there was just like a visual that would come across the, the radio waves right now, and you could just see Emma and Harriet when they're looking at this drawing and the way their heads tilt together in unison. The, <laughs> you know, that would be, that would just be an absolutely perfect introduction to Mr. Elton, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. Mr. Elton is something i mean the first time we see him is when he's doing the wedding for mr weston and miss taylor and uh it's a really beautiful building that they picked it has like this actual behind him is like an original actual georgian kind of church um and then in the sanctuary area they kind of built it out to match that 
Um, but, you know, he's always wearing like this, you know, the priest's collar. And in church, he has like this big marshmallowy kind of white over thing. You know, that's got these huge like angel wing arms on it and stuff. <laughs> and he's always very uh, performy. You know, he's always sure. giving a performance. Whether it's in church or out of church, um, he's always making a big show. And that's what his whole deal is. Um, and, you know, he's really interesting because we have the situation with Emma, who kind of looks down on him as kind of being only a clergyman. And she thinks that he and Harriet are kind of on the same level with each other. And that he'd be lucky to be with somebody like Harriet, which, I mean, that's a real blind spot. Because even though Harriet is a really sweet girl, she has no name. She has no parents. She's, you know, a parlor boarder at a girl's school. Um, so for Mr. Elton, there is no way that he would think of going that low to find someone to be with. He is trying to go after Emma, and she would never think of somebody as low as him so you know there's a lot going on with class and with Mr. Elton being kind of shown as this grasping kind of a guy and thinks he's on the same level you know as Emma and she doesn't see that at all but she thinks nothing of having Harriet be her best friend who is totally you know unknown what level she is on well, it's like Emma says to Harriet, I'm going to bring you to the top, baby. You know, that's <laughs> basically, yeah, that, that's what happens. And so I feel that there's nothing in her mind that's going to stop her from achieving that because Emma has always been able to do what she wants to do. Everyone thinks that the matches that she's made have been fantastic. I mean, she's only done one. It's not even, yeah, like but she's it's just like, much. but they're like, that one was really good. I just said it right now. I'm like, all of her matches are fantastic. You're like, she's done one. I'm like, well, but it was very good. There's something about clearly, the I'm the Mr. Knightley of the situation. <laughs> In the book, Mr. Knightley kind of goes into a whole thing about this, which I enjoy, where he's like talking about the supposed match you know, that Emma made. And he's like, well, what do you even mean that you made this match? Because if all you said was, oh, Miss Taylor and Mr. Weston would be a good couple, and that's all, like, you did nothing. You just commented on something that anybody could see. You didn't, like, push them together or try to, like, make them come together as a couple. You just observed something. And is that really matchmaking? You know, I mean, he goes into it in depth in the book. And he's right. You know, what did she really do? Except just say, oh, wouldn't this be nice? I mean, these are the only two single people in the whole town. <laughs> and you're like, oh, wouldn't it be good if they got together? I mean, that's, you know, what did you really do? It's not that hard of a job. I wanted them to sing Matchmaker. That's, <laughs> I, I needed that. Like, I need that right now as we're talking. Like, I'm listening to you. I'm engaged. I'm singing Matchmaker in my head. Like, I can't stop. Coming and... so to Instagram, you're going to cut cut emma to match up with matchmaker that you know i i i could who knows i mean but it's yeah it, it's really interesting how you know she has these ideas and she's able to move forward and it's also youth you know when you think hey i can do anything and until you reach that first no in your life you feel like yeah i can absolutely do anything yeah oh god i mean you know I, it's funny because when i read emma 
I see all of her flaws. But again, there's a lot of ways that I am like this because I am a know-it-all sometimes. I feel like, <laughs> you know, I tell people how it is, you yeah, know. Yeah, you know the streets. And I'm streets. very convinced of my own rightness, you know. So I feel like I can see myself in this character sometimes. I can also see myself in Mr. Knightley. Um, but I get it. I get why she feels this way because, again... She is kind of like the smartest person in town. She does know more than other people. And Mm -hmm. she isn't very challenged in this place. You know, she's never been forced to go somewhere else and prove herself. And that's one of the things that Mr. Knightley says. Like, he says that it might be a good thing for her to be in love with somebody and not be sure that it's going to be returned. Because, you know, it might teach her something. She's very smart but she hasn't really been forced to live. And that's what's missing in Emma. And I think that, you know, over the course of this movie, they really do a good job of showing her go through these really dark moments where she does have to understand, come out with more understanding than she went in with. The biggest thing that I have in common with Emma is that my butt gets really cold. (laughs) And that, you know, when she has the dress on and she just kind of hikes it up to get, you know, the flame on the butt there, I'm like, oh, my God, I can really relate to that because my butt is always frozen. We have like a little heater, you know, in the bathroom. I'll turn that on. It's great. But (laughs) it's just very funny because that's something, again, very modern. Um, And then we're we're looking back as well. So the biggest thing, yes, that I have and common with emma as we both have a cold cold butt butt. yeah (laughs) it's true i mean the character of mr elton though played by josh o'connor incredible it it, is again it's this wonderful charactery comedic piece again it's like miranda hart with what she did with miss bates he really is able to take all these moments and bring out every single nuance so that you're always engaged with what's going on. And you understand, you know, the bravado, the ridiculousness of this character that you may otherwise not fully understand unless you saw it performed in front of you. The servants. I mean, that's another thing that I want to bring up. These two kids that are servants and they're going around bringing screens. They actually have to open up that frame that uh, yeah, Mr. Elton has for his wonderful drawing, you know, and, and there's actually an outtake where one of those kids just couldn't even handle it. He just kept laughing and laughing and laughing. Because they open this up in like such a specific way, you know, they just reveal and unveil this thing. And it's also playing music too. <laughs> I mean, Mr. Elton went over the top, obviously, because he is such like a cockatoo of oh, a person. Yeah. You know, he just seems like a bird with this plumage. Well, then he marries Augusta, who has, you know, that kind of wonderful, poofy, showy (laughs) hair. You know, it it reminds you of like a show poodle, you know, (laughs) with, with what he has. And why wouldn't he do that? Because he wants to show that, you know, he's the best and he's with the best. We actually get to see behind the curtain you know, Mr. Elton, which is really interesting because, you know, we see him as a very fun, innocuous character. Oh, yeah, he's in love with Emma. He's kind of a pain in the neck. But when we have that scene in the carriage, we see that Mr. Elton is not that calm a guy at all. And he frankly is scary. Um, Yeah, he's a rage monster in that scene. And And you're like, okay. And he's also not above being inappropriate. Um 
you know, in the dance scene, and we really need to talk about that dance scene because there's sure so do. much going on. Oh, it's a big in scene. that scene. Um, but one of the things that happens is, you know, that he is, you know, he kind of declines to dance with Harriet, and it's a very inappropriate and impolite thing for him to do. And you may not really know that if you don't know like the mores at the time, but. For there to be this girl who's sitting there and not dancing. And then he asks somebody else to dance. He asks Mrs. Weston to dance. And she declines because she's pregnant. And she's like, oh, but here's Harriet. She doesn't have a partner. And he's just like, oh, yeah, no. I mean, that's rude. It's like very rude. It's horrendous. It's publicly rude. You know, and everybody pretty much thinks it's abominable behavior. And including, you know, I think you know his wife kind of gives him a little bit of business later and they're like because they're almost like yelling at each other before this dance starts and we don't know what it's about but you know i think that he's been embarrassing to her um because that's the thing with mrs elton she may be a ridiculous woman but she's also very proper and you know we see that later in the picnic scene as well that she you know is not afraid to call out emma's inappropriate behavior and I believe that in the dance scene, we're seeing her call out her husband's inappropriate behavior after she finds out about it later. Um, but of course, that's when Mr. Knightley comes to Harriet's rescue by asking her to dance and helping save her from humiliation, which of course makes her fall in love with him. But it's also, this is the scene where Mr. Knightley and Emma kind of realize that they are in love with each other. What a realization. You know, uh, you know, he comes over to her and they're talking and he says, to, you know, he they end up dancing together. And she says, and I don't know how he responds to this in the movie and the book. He's like, no, uh, she says, like, we're not so much a brother and sister that this would be inappropriate. Um, and in the book, he's like, of course not, because he doesn't even think of them as that way, yeah. even though they sort of are, you know, it's kind of like in Clueless where josh and Cher, like he's her he was her stepbrother but now their parents aren't married anymore and this um emma's sister is married to mr knightley's brother so they're kind of like in-laws in a way um but it wouldn't have been that strange um my grandmother and her sisters actually married my grandfather and his brothers (laughs) and that was only in like the 30s the 1930s so it wasn't even that long ago so back at this point it really wouldn't have been that strange uh, especially in a small town where we're dealing with you know two of the most wealthy families in the area of course like their two sons and the two daughters would have potentially gotten married um well i also want to bring up that you know at a grade school dance uh the girl that i liked uh didn't want to dance with me but my friend spoke with her and brokered a deal where she would dance with me for half a dance. <laughs> well, that was like really nice of your friend. It was. It was. It was like, thanks. <laughs> thanks, guys. That was cool. But the cool thing that, uh, the back to the Mr. Knightley and Emma dance, the really cool thing that they do in the movie that is visual and is not from the book is that uh, they don't have gloves on in that scene so johnny flynn and anya taylor joy aren't wearing gloves when they dance so their hands are actually touching mm-hmm. they're having actual skin to skin contact which is 
not normal. If you look at everybody else in the scene, everybody else has their gloves back on. Um, people would have possibly not had the gloves on because they had just eaten. Okay. Um, and that's why Emma and Mr. Knightley don't have gloves on. She's actually holding her gloves in her hand. And Mr. Weston comes over and is saying, oh, Emma, you have to show everybody how it's done and come back and dance, you know, to get everybody back dancing. And she just neglects to put her gloves back on because she's kind of uh, uh, pressed into dancing. Um, and she and Mr. Knightley, neither one have gloves on. So their hands are touching. It's very sensual kind of a scene. And, you know, you really see the two of them, like, understanding in a really strong way that they have a huge attraction to each other that they've neither one of them ever experienced before. I mean, and this is, he's known her since she was born. So these people have known each other for a long time. But in this scene, their relationship materially changes um, to something totally different than it's ever been before. Well, the reactions from the actors, Anya Taylor-Joy and Johnny Flynn, play it perfectly. Johnny Flynn is flabbergasted. He can't believe that he has these feelings, and he realizes that he's had them forever. Anya Taylor-Joy realizes, oh my God, I have these feelings as well. And you can see this discovery, and the shock of this discovery, and it, it shakes them. And both Emma and Mr. Knightley are very strong, unflappable characters. They move forward. And so whenever we see these characters falter for a moment emotionally, it has quite an impact. And with this, it's something where, I don't know, I feel that the audience somehow is even surprised by this. Even though we've been watching the movie, we know what's going to happen. There's something just about their dynamic that you just didn't ever really think that we would get to the point where they would get together. You would think that they would just keep batting it back and <laughs> forth. You know, it makes you think about much ado about nothing, right? That's what I, I thought about when we watched it. But somehow, when I think about much ado about nothing, those discussions seem more pointed from the beginning that they are going to end up together. And this film, you know, it's played beautifully. I mean, we have that scene where there's the almost kiss between the two of them. They have these moments, and you can feel the energy, but you don't feel that the film is actually going to give you the satisfaction of this romance happening. You know, it's just something that, I don't know, I feel just as shocked as the actors, and it makes you feel much more for the actors when you're able to see down this well of their emotions and all of the colors that they have. It's really wonderful, and it, again, speaks to what you talked about earlier, Georgia, with the clothing, with, you know, when we see Mr. Knightley naked and getting clothed, and then later when we see Emma undressing, you know, and then we see her vulnerable. Yeah. And this is, they have all of their armor on, but it might as well be invisible. Yeah. You know, they are fully because they shocked. they see each other for yes. the first time, and... I love your point about them having a kind of a parallel thing with Beatrice and Benedict from Much Ado, because yes, they are kind of like, um, they stick out in the same way that Beatrice and Benedict stick out from that play where all the other characters are behaving in a very specific way. Um, but, and they're performing and doing like their own things too, but Beatrice and Benedict are the only people who actually seem like they're talking to each other yeah. most of the time. You know, they have such a back and forth, and that's the same thing with Emma and Mr. Knightley. Everyone else is just talking. 
Um, but the two of them are talking to each other. You know, they go back and forth. They kind of have these verbal sparring sessions where they're having a dialogue, whereas everyone else is just kind of doing these speeches, mm, you know? Mm. So they're the only two people who are different than everyone else. Um, and I think that that was really highlighted in a lot of the different scenes where you have them very close talking to each other. You know, they'll be in a room and people will be, you know, doing this presentation almost. And then you have Mr. Knightley kind of leaning over to talk quietly to Emma because they have, a they have by virtue of the fact that their families have been thrown together forever, they have an intimacy that you wouldn't normally develop, you know, with someone else. Um, especially of the opposite sex at this time period. But because their families have been thrown together so much, they have that. And yeah. that really sets them up to kind of be the only people that would be right for each other. And I think that it's really smart and well done how that's highlighted in the film visually. Well, visually, I mean, there are so many moments that we could talk about. But the one that comes to mind for me actually again has to do with the servants and Mr. Woodhouse with these screens. He needs these screens to protect him from drafts, protect himself and others, by the way, from drafts. The drafts that he's always feeling and he's always mad when other people don't also feel them. Yeah, he gets it's like Miss Taylor would have felt that. <laughs> It's, but I, I really like it because there's a practical purpose to it as well. When we get you know to the end of the film, and we have you know Mr. Knightley and we have Emma on the couch together, he decides that there is a draft and there needs to be a large screen placed in front of him so he can't see what's happening on the other side, so that their romance can bloom. And we go from that scene actually into their wedding. You know, we we see. Bill Nye, he giving away Anya Taylor Joy, walking down the aisle. It, it's an incredible, wonderful, joyous scene. And he's sad, but he's yes. happy at the same time. <laughs> well, because he knows they're going to live in the house with him. They are. And that's, yeah. you know, that is one thing that I really wanted to discuss, kind of almost as our final point. So I don't know if we're there yet, but if we aren't, we should be. <laughs> um, you know, the whole thing and the thing that is like super modern to me about this story and about Mr. Knightley as a character is that he gives up his home to be with Emma. So we often see that reversed. You know, the, the female is the one who's expected to give up their home and move to the man's house and become their wife and run their home for them. Yeah. In this case... Mr. Knightley is the one who gives all that up to be with Emma. Um, and I don't think that's at all normal. I think that that's like such a subversion from Jane Austen at her time. And of course, you know, it makes sense within the context of the story. Uh, they actually visually, again, build that in in this film. Whereas the kind of the first time that we see Mr. Knightley's house when he's walking through it. There's like, you know, drapes on everything yeah. and the statues are kind of covered. And it just shows you that he's much more at home when he's at Hartfield with the Woodhouses than he is in his actual house, Donwell Abbey. Um, and I just think that it's such a huge deal. And it also kind of makes up for, you know, all of these times that he's kind of been instructing Emma and in how to behave 
that when it comes to their relationship, he's actually willing to give up a lot so that he can be with her because she can't leave her father. Like, her father would be destroyed, you know. There's such a sweet scene when uh, Isabella and uh, John Knightley leave after their visit, and uh, Bill Nighy and Anya Taylor-Joy are standing in the doorway, and he's so sad, you know, to see Isabella go. Yep. And she says, well, she says to her father, I would never go anywhere. You know, I'm always going to be here with you. Um, And that's what he needs, you know. And the thing is, Mr. Knightley understands that. Mr. Knightley loves Mr. Woodhouse as well, you know. And that's what's so cute about that scene. You know, we've seen this many times that Mr. Knightley comes over. He and, and Mr. Woodhouse sit together in front of the fire and talk. Um, but Mr. Woodhouse kind of knows that there's something going on and that Mr. Knightley and Emma should have some time alone. So he has them bring in the screens to cover him so that they can have this moment of privacy behind the screen. The one connection that we don't see between Emma and Mr. Knightley, and I think this is interesting, is a musical connection. Because he actually has that duet with Jane. Mr. Knightley has that great song that they do, Drink to Me Only with Thine Eyes. And it's a really wonderful scene, and you can feel the connection when they do it. It's, you know, and the movie is very good with misdirection as well, especially if you're not familiar with the source material or, you know, haven't seen another film adaptation. You're not quite sure where people are headed. Um, you know, is he going to go with Jane? Is Mr. Knightley going to be with Jane instead of Emma? And Mrs. Weston tells Emma, like, I think I found a match. I think Mr. Knightley and Jane Fairfax would be a good match. See? And Emma, like, poops herself thinking about that because right. she gets super jealous. And it's a thing where we understand how Emma and Mr. Knightley feel about each other before they understand themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, because we see how jealous he is of Frank Churchill. Oh, yeah. And she's very jealous of Jane Fairfax um, and his attentions to her. And that's actually uh, a difference from the book. In the book, um, I believe that it's Frank and Jane who do that musical thing together. Oh. Um, but because Johnny Flynn is the musician, um, they put Johnny Flynn with, with Amber Anderson, who is a freaking amazing classical pianist, um, to do this song together. And it's a period song. So um, I, I was familiar with it. I think I had to play this on piano when I was a little kid. Oh, wow. Uh, but he plays the violin. Um, and the music in this is so great. Uh, anyway, we did kind of mention uh, Johnny Flynn's Queen Bee song earlier. Um, but I think that uh, it's really interesting how they have almost like this folksy type music, more so than almost this chamber type classical music that you always see in Jane Austen movies. And it lends itself to this small town thing to me, you know, that people would have been playing, you know, songs together um, in the evenings when they would have these visits, you know, because what else are they going to do? Oh, yeah. Well, and it also seems a lot more modern once again. Because people are always listening to these kind of songs, I feel like. You know, I mean, you have so many bands that are out there that have this kind of sound. They embrace this. So it feels like, hey, I could just be at home cranking some tunes by myself, 
2024. You know, <laughs> yeah. and that's and that's what's really interesting, you know, sipping on some two buck chuck, you know, making the <laughs> most of it. But what I love about this is the way that, yeah, they bring this music in so well. We also have Anya Taylor-Joy who, you know, learned to play piano for this, right? And she sang. And then Amber Anderson, you know, as Jane Fairfax, she could already play. And she sang. And then Johnny Flynn sang. It's like you brought all these people up to the next level. And what I mean by that is it, it made the character so much bigger. And we've seen this in other adaptations as well of Jane Austen that we'll be discussing soon. But this is really interesting because it, it just mires you more in the reality of the world. And the dances, that's so important, that yes. literal physical connection. Again, music present, singing, playing. It, it, that was the way that you made a match. That's you know? the only way that people would interact with each other, you yeah. know, and and marriage being such an important part of people's lives and how much uh, of a big deal it was, you know, uh, for somebody to make a match and, and meet at these dances and things. It's it's just really well thought out in this film because, again, small town, small dances. Yeah. You know, uh, things happening there weren't easily overlooked. So Harriet being snubbed by Mr. Elton, everyone would know that that happened, you know. And it's the same thing with, you know, the the meanness to Miss Bates at the picnic. You know, even though there were only a few people there, those are the only people in that circle. So everybody knows about it. And it's, it's a public, very public humiliation to Miss Bates. Well, Miss Bates, I mean, just to jump back to that for a moment, it is such a difficult situation with her mother because her mother can't hear. So she needs to always be yelling, basically, so that she can hear her. And it is comedic for the audience. But it makes her look ridiculous and it's inappropriate. Yes. Um, in their society to be loud, you know, and yeah, very, very smart. Well, and also we do that in the church as well, where Mr. Elton out of nowhere you know, just blasts off and just almost screams a word. And Mrs. Bates stands up thinking it's time to stand up. Yeah. Because she can't hear. It's, yeah. Yeah. The Bates family definitely has some real hardships. And it's, <laughs> yeah. it's something where, again, it's like there is a reality to this. There is humor, but there is a real sadness. So I, I think that highlighting that and putting that there center stage is, is really great. And with these songs, we get the other side of life. We get this heavenly side of life. And when we actually have the wonderful scene, you know, where we see <laughs> Mr. Knightley and Emma outside. Oh, my God. That is like the craziest scene. Yes. Yes. The way everything comes together in this ending is really great. Um, and it's also super high emotionality, you know, going on where, you know, Harriet reveals that Mr. Knightley is who she's been crushing on. And Emma has feelings for Mr. Knightley. And Harriet realizes that and feels really terrible about it. Um, and it's like, oh, you never thought that 
I could be with him because you want to be with him. And if you want to be with him, then you have to be with him because you're so much better than me. There's so much fraught stuff going on in that. No choice is easy. Yeah. And, you know, at the same time, like Mr. Knightley is like super in love with Emma and Emma's super in love with him. And he thinks that she's upset because Frank Churchill and Jane Fairfax have been together, but that's not what she cares about at all. She's upset. Because she's just really had a pretty bad fight with Harriet. And just everything bad is going on. And it's this moment that Mr. Knightley chooses to propose to Emma. And, you know, it's at the worst time when everything is messed up, you know. And I, they chose in this to have Emma have this nosebleed, you know, kind of happen. Um, because she's just so emotional and everything's going crazy. And in the commentary and, and in the behind the scenes, we see that Anya Taylor-Joy's actual nose started bleeding in real life during the scene because, like, she was so in it, you know, that that just happened. And it, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, she's tilting her head back. She's like, okay, okay, all right, we're going to go. You know, <laughs> they they really wanted to line it up because in real life, Anya Taylor-Joy gets nosebleeds. So it was just like something that was really incredible that it happened in the moment. And, you know, they, they cleaned her up and, you know, you could see them lining up the shot and they went for it. And that blood that comes out of her nose, that's hers. And it's real. And it forms almost like a blood mustache yeah. when it gets wiped. <laughs> that's funny. And it adds that, again, there's humor. There, there, there's truth. There's passion. That's everything that's in this film. And again, it's so vibrantly shot. You know, the costumes, the sets, the actors, everything is in full bloom in this film. Even when we're in winter, I mean, we go through each individual season. And it, it's wonderful because it is like you've lived a full life, right? Because they say that life is like the changing of seasons. So we've gone through an entire lifetime with Emma and Mr. Knightley and all of these other wonderful characters. And we get this wonderful wrap-up that actually is reminiscent of The Graduate because we're in, you know, the church and we have Mr. Woodhouse walk Emma down the aisle, very emotional like we talked about. And so Mr. Knightley... And he walked her down the aisle in the first scene too, There, or the first time in the church when... Um, Mrs. Weston and Mr. Weston were getting married. Oh, see, it just, they, I love. The parallelism is really smart here. Yeah, it, it's, it bookends. It's wonderful bookends. And w- when they get to the front, you know, I mean, we have Mr. Elton doing the service, <laughs> yeah. which is really great. And we have, you know, them up at the altar. And our last shot of the film is we go over to Emma and, you know, she closes her eyes. And that's the end of the film. And the beginning of the film was her in bed opening her eyes. Yes. Yes. I mean, it's it, it's just so well thought out from start to finish. It's a wonderful, wonderful fairy tale. It's a wonderful story. Unbelievably rich characters. I don't think there's going to be a period film that I ever like more than this. I absolutely, again, adore this movie. And this is not where I usually go to at all. But I would watch this again six more times. And just to see such a wonderful team assembled, first-time director, Autumn DeWild, for first feature film. You know, she's had many, many other credits. She's a very accomplished photographer. 
you know, music videos, the whole nine yards. The poster yards. of the film was her photo. Yes. So, yeah. I mean, so it's it's just like, this is crazy. Like, you can see that she was, like, friends with Elliot Smith, you know? Like, wow. You know, th- this is a person that, like, you go back and you're like, wait, Florence and the Machine, Beck, all of these different people, you know, she worked with. This is a very, very talented person. But her first feature film... And have it be this, and have it yeah. be this good. Mm. I mean, props to Autumn DeWilde. 100%. I mean, I, I think across the board, this should be recognized more. I mean, if you haven't seen this movie, we really recommend that you do it. If you take a look on IMDb, as rated a 6.7 presently. That is an absolute disgrace. We're 100% disgusted by yeah. this. I yeah. mean... There's no way it should be like that. And the complaints that I'm reading, you know, when I'm reading the reviews are so just ludicrous to me about it just being like, you know, yeah, it's really stylish, but, you know, oh. they aren't, you know, they they aren't faithful to the story. And I'm like, do you know the story? Because, like, <laughs> I don't think you do. Like, I'm very familiar with this book. I've read it. I've watched a bunch of interpretations. I mean, come on, folks. This is as great as it gets, in my opinion. Because they're taking this really wonderful book and making it into a film, which is a totally different medium. And they're taking everything that is cool and amazing about movies and bringing that to bear on a written story. I can't possibly like it more than I do. Yeah. And I just think that what they achieved was amazing. I, I don't think there's been any other version of Emma where I really understood and was, you know, just felt they're in the small town. You know, they're going into the same places and stuff and people are trying to make things fresh. But it's not fresh because it's the same thing you've seen over and over your entire life. Mm-hmm. And yet, at the same time, these people have a very transformative year in their lives. It's just so well done. And seriously, every frame is visually rich and stunning and there's more to look at. And I think that's what makes this such a good rewatch because every time you see it, you notice something else. You pick up something else, you know, whether it's a line that you had glossed over before or part of a room that you never saw, you know, or one of the things that they're eating, you know, you didn't ever notice the intricacy of the cakes, you know, um, there's just so much going on and it's visually a feast, um, for the eye and ear really. So it's, it's really well worth watching and it is not just style over substance. That's a total untruth and total misinterpretation of what they were doing to me. The style underlays the substance of the film. The two go hand in hand and you can't separate them. And that's what a movie should be. I would say all the disciplines support each other to make the final product. And you can see that the collaboration is evident. You know, it's, it's really funny that we talked about that nosebleed scene (laughs) because one of the things that happens in that scene uh, is that Mr. Knightley gives his handkerchief to Emma to plug up her nose (laughs) and she blots it and then hands him back the handkerchief. And uh, the film that we're going to watch next week also has a very uh, important handkerchief scene. 
where Mr. Edward Ferris hands his uh, handkerchief to Eleanor Dashwood and she blows her nose into it and tries to give it back. (laughs) In that case, he didn't take it. So (laughs) we're going to talk about Sense and Sensibility next week. Um, This would be the Emma Thompson uh, written adaptation directed by Ang Lee, uh, which is probably the film that kind of started the Jane Austen adaptation boom that started in the 1990s. Um, It's a great movie, and we are going to be discussing it with a friend of ours, Jessica Sandage, who is an amazing singer, um, who we know from singing choir with her, but she also is an opera singer and does amazing shows um, all over California and the world. Yeah, very talented soprano. She's played everywhere. She's played Carnegie Hall. She's played Lincoln Center. Her voice has been described as plush by the New York Times. And by us. Yeah, and by us. And she also knows a lot about movies. She's a very cool person. It's a really fun talk. I I can't wait for this one to come out. So uh, definitely join us back for that, uh, for another hanky movie um, (laughs) for us to talk about. And yeah, so that's it for Emma. Emma 2020. Mm Mm-hmm. And until next time, stay comfy. Stay comfy, everybody.